Syzygy, episode 56, No Bang for Beetlejuice. And welcome back. Welcome back. We've been away for a little while. Back for another edition of the Syzygy Podcast. My name is Chris Stewart, sitting opposite me at the table in her office, as ever, Dr. Emily Brunsden. Hi, Emily. Hello, hello. Where have you been? It's been Christmas and New Year. We've both been away, but some of us have been more away than others. I went on holiday. I went on holiday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where'd you go? I went to Tenerife. Very nice. Fantastic. Tenerife. Now, that's one of those places in the world. There are a bunch of places in the world where I don't actually know where they are. Right? I've got this sort of, this mental image of... All of these little places, Tenerife's an island, right? Yes, yep. And and to to my mind, they're all sort of clustered together off the coast of Europe broadly. But that could be literally anywhere, and I could be off by an entire hemisphere. I think you're so off I by a continent here. Chris. I literally <laughs> do not know where any of these places are. So Tenerife, where where is that? Tenerife's part of the Canary Islands, which, which is uh, kind of to the left of Africa. Right. My apologies to. Everyone who lives there and geographers everywhere. Um, and nice place to be at beautiful, Christmas Beautiful, beautiful place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we went uh, basically because I wasn't going to New Zealand this Christmas. I usually do to get some lovely summer sunshine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I said, you know what? I don't really think I can do this whole UK darkness thing for an entire season of winter. Good choice. Speaking of someone who has, um, it's, yeah. uh, it's quite a long dark season. So to get my vitamin D levels up, um, mm-hmm. went for a week and yeah, enjoyed the sunshine. It was a very pleasant sort of 20-ish degrees, beautiful, beautiful country to do walking in. We climbed up almost anything and everything we could find to climb up. It was just amazing. Very nice, very nice. And you come back happy and healthy and full of vitamin D and ready for the new year. Indeed. Indeed. And we are back with another New Year of Syzygy podcast. In this episode, we're going to be talking about something which kind of hit the papers a little while ago. I saw a few news stories on this one about a particular star with an interesting name, uh, quite prominent in the night sky, which um, has been doing some weird stuff. And people have been looking at it and going, ah, well, clearly that means it's going to explode in a huge supernova and that'll be amazing. Turns out maybe that's not quite right. We're talking about the star Betelgeuse. Emily, what's going on? Yeah, so Betelgeuse is one of the brightest stars in the sky. It's a very, very easily identifiable star in the constellation of Orion. Okay. So it's a great one to go out and have a look at. And we'll talk about kind of where it sits and how you can observe it. Uh, and it is bit. it is easily seen. Like it's a big, bright it's one. It's really, really easy to see. Yeah. Which, yeah. which, like in Orion, which bit of Orion is it? So it's kind of the left shoulder. Left shoulder, right. So it's not the belt, it's not the sword, it's the shoulder bit. Well, the left, yeah, the left shoulder, um, I'm not very good at this. So the left shoulder <laughs> of, of the left hand side shoulder. Right. As you're as facing you're Orion, so yeah. stage left. So, yeah, so Orion, of Orion, it must be his right shoulder. Right, Orion's right shoulder, but as we look at it, it's on the left. God, that's confusing. Did you have the same problem that I did when you went from South Hemisphere to North Hemisphere? That, of course, you know, you're facing a different way. Everything's upside down, including things like Orion, where. I didn't know that that's what Orion was. Like I'd been looking at the wrong, like Orion not standing on his head and thinking the different bits were different bits. It's the same with the moon, right? Yes, you look yeah. at the you look at the the face, the man in the moon, and I had a completely different idea of what the eyes and the nose and the mouth were for the man in the moon. And when you come to the normal northern hemisphere, you go, oh that, oh I see, I get it now. That's see, what everyone else. I get has a been man seeing. in the moon in the southern hemisphere. And yeah, people, I do. And people say that there's a dog in the northern. Hem- I've not seen a dog. 
the dog in the moon in the is northern it? hemisphere. Yeah. Really? Yeah. No, I haven't Some seen that. Some dog playing with a ball. I'm, no, I don't know what's no, going no, on no, there. No. They don't know what to Anyway, that's a side tangent. Pull it back. Beetlejuice, we're talking Beetlejuice, about. Beetlejuice, yeah. Um, you were telling me earlier that you have observed Beetlejuice recently. I have observed it. Do you it. want to just share that with yeah, us? Yeah, it was a, a very unprofessional observing session in it the sense like that uh, it wasn't done at a telescope. Mm-hmm. It was done by me uh, sitting in a nice spa pool in Tenerife looking up at the beautiful clear night sky. Have I ever told you how much I really don't like you sometimes? <laughs> yeah, okay. But was it nice? It was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can clearly see that Beetlejuice is not as bright as it used to be. No, okay, with the naked eye. With the naked like, eye. You can, you can look at it as an astronomer. And I know, okay, don't write to me. I know that all astronomers aren't out there every night doing astronomy things by looking with their eyes at the sky. That's not how it works. But you can look at Betelgeuse and go, you know what? kind of feels like it used to be brighter. Yeah, exactly. Whatever happened to the Betelgeuse we had before the war? Is that, you know, how, over what kind of time period has it changed? So from October last year, October 2019, to December 2019, it's dimmed by about two and a half times its normal brightness. That sounds significant. Yeah. Wow. So you could see that yourself with your naked eye. So people have observed this, and that's caused quite a few people in the world to go, ah, well, that means... What? What's what's the gossip? She's going to blow. <laughs> She's going to go. Everyone take cover. Hide under a desk. No, under a doorway. You should be in a doorway. No, that's earthquakes. Uh, what I, do you do for a supernova? You Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Say goodbye. Yeah. Get out your camera. Oh, it's about dear. all you can do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's true that Beetlejuice is about to explode. Okay. But Should we is, be worried about that? This is the astronomical about to explode. Okay, so this is about with an asterisk and you look down to where the asterisk is and about means within the next week, month, year, century, millennium. Our best guess is in about 100,000 years. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> 100,000 years, which, okay, yes, in, in a universe where... M- Millions of years, billions of years are the kind of, you know, time-based currency that we're talking about. 100,000 years is nothing. Like, that's about to go. Any 100 millennia or so now, that's longer than sort of, you know, human prehistory. So we're not, yeah. we're not particularly worried about this. But at the same no. time, neither are we out there going, come on, I want to see this for myself when it goes. You'll be waiting a long time, yes. probably, statistically. Indeed. So we can put some numbers on this dimming. So we do actually have a measurement tool that we use for brightness. And uh, the most common one you're going to come across is the magnitude scale. Mm -hmm. And this is particularly apparent magnitude. So this is how bright all of the stars are in the sky and give them a number of brightness. And the magnitude scale is a bit crazy. Uh, It's one of these um, hangovers in astronomy whereby astronomers just gave up on SI units or at least SI units gave up on astronomy a long time ago. <laughs> they diverged. They went different yeah. paths. So we have an ma- absolute uh, apparent magnitude scale, which goes uh, in reverse logarithmic numbers. Right. So that means that larger numbers or larger, more negative numbers mean a brighter object. Larger, more negative numbers mean brighter. Yes. Well done. And <laughs> larger, positive numbers mean fainter. Yeah. Can I offer a piece of advice to astronomers everywhere? Just reverse that and everyone will be happy. Like, surely this is the bane of every astrono- astronomy student's existence that they have to figure yeah. this nonsense well, out. It, well, it's kind of made sense because we never really intended to have negatives. We 
the intention of the apparent magnitude scale was we'd put zero at the brightest star in the sky. And then everything would just be bigger than that because everything's fainter kind than that. Kind of feels like that was short-sighted, though, don't you? Like, well, let's put zero at like nothing could possibly be brighter than that thing that I've just observed. <laughs> oh, it turns out there are a lot of things brighter than that. Yeah, we just hadn't seen them yet. So it's been recalibrated the scale since. Right. So there are a few stars that are negative, not very many, to mm-hmm. be fair. Uh, but it kind of makes sense that it should work by that fainter stars get bigger numbers because you keep increasing the ability that you have to see fainter and fainter things. And if you had to redefine your scale every time to be zero for the faintest object that you right. could see. Right, you've got the same problem. Yeah, yeah. It would, that would be annoying. Yeah, or so, you'd be going way down into the negatives that way. Anyway, so okay, all right, you've convinced me that it's not as crazy as it sounds. Still doesn't yeah. sound ideal, but fine. So let's give you some ideas to calibrate your, sure. your number scale. So about zero is mm-hmm. about the star Vega. It was kind of supposed to be Vega, but Vega's not quite zero, but it's about... Ish. Let's ish say Vega-ish. And where do I find Vega? Is that familiar to me? Should be, maybe? It's in uh, Lyra. But it's a prominent star? Yes, it's, yeah, it's quite a bright People star. People know yeah. Vega. Okay. Those of you out there in listener land going, yeah, Chris, come on, Vega. Okay. All right. Sorry. Well, I'll give you another one. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the brightest star in the sky, apart from the sun, mm-hmm. uh, is Sirius, which yep. is at minus 1.46. Okay. So that's, did you say that's the brightest one in the That's the brightest sky? star. Okay. Yeah. So Sirius is quite close to Orion. as uh, the, the dog star, mm-hmm. if you like, the part of the um, Canis Major who's following Orion on his hunting journey. Uh, and what else? Uh, so Venus, Venus is a bit brighter again. It's minus 4.2. Yeah, not a star, but still up there in the skies and very bright. Yes. And it's minus... 4.2. So it's not as bright as as Sirius. No, it's brighter. It's bright because it's minus 4. Sorry. Yep, wrapping my head around this. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and so what the stars that you see on a, on a clear night, on a sort of from a city-ish location, you're probably looking at stars... Um, down to about minus two, maybe minus three, if you if it's quite um, a bit darker. If you go to a really nice dark sky, and you that's when you start to see the thousands and thousands of stars, and actually constellations even become very difficult to pick out. Um, you're looking down to something like plus six, right? Or up to up to plus yeah. six, or in the direction of negative, yeah, fainter, faint, faint, fainter stars. Yes, I mean those are the views that really take your breath away. Is when suddenly just the sheer enormity of of number of stars in the sky, all the little faint ones that you never knew were there, and they're mm. just everywhere. So many stars. Yeah. So Betelgeuse has changed by a whole magnitude, basically. Wow. So it's gone from zero point five, so quite bright, uh, to minus sorry to one point five. Right, 0.5 to 1.5. So it's a change of one. Change quite a lot. Okay. But one doesn't sound like a lot, but then on a logarithmic scale, one is about two and a half times brighter. Okay. Yes. Right. So that's a significant change. It's easily observable, Mm -hmm. even with just the eye, the naked eye. And why? Why would that be happening? I mean, you said a minute ago that, that Betelgeuse is going to any... 100,000 years or so now, uh, is going to explode. But is it related to that or is it something else? Do stars just do this? It is related to that. So Betelgeuse is a really interesting type of star. And it's probably best to start with, let's see what we understand about Betelgeuse so that we can understand why it might be doing this crazy stuff now. Makes sense. Um, Well, 
Let, well, even even backtrack again. Let's let's look at Orion, the whole constellation that Betelgeuse sits in, because that's the story of Betelgeuse as well. So the constellation of Orion, um, as we draw it in the sky and say, you know, these are the lines that connect the different stars and make this particular shape of a hunter. It's kind of one of the best constellations in some senses okay. to convince you that the shape is what it's supposed to be. Okay, talk me I think, through that. I think a mean? lot of constellations you sort of look at and it's like, these three stars make a horse. Oh, or, I see you know, what you mean, yes. And you're yes. like, yeah, really? Mm, okay. Um, but Orion, I can, I can get on board with Orion because yeah. it's kind of the, got this um, quadrilateral shape. So you've got four stars that define uh, the two shoulders and the bottom of the tunic mm-hmm. of Orion. Or the belt, I've always thought, isn't it? Is the belt coming the, Well, the four belt is in the middle. Oh, right, yeah. So gotcha. You, so you've got sort of a box, which is four stars, and those are quite bright stars, mm-hmm. so they're quite easy to pick out. Um, they've all got wonderful names. So Betelgeuse is, um, I'm going to go with the, if you're looking at it from the sky, the top okay. left one, then um, this is from the Northern Hemisphere, so Orion's upright. If mm. you're in the Southern Hemisphere, you've got to turn everything. Yeah, just stand on your head. So Betelgeuse is on the top left. Um, the one other shoulder is called Bellatrix. Mm-hmm. It's not quite as bright as um, Betelgeuse, but it's prominent enough you can spot it out. The bottom left part of the tunic is called Safe. Safe, as yeah. in spelled how? S-A-I-P-H. I might be okay. saying it wrong. Yeah. But yeah, and that's a bit fainter. And then uh, the other one on the bottom right-hand side of the tunic is Rigel. Rigel, yes. So So three out of four of those I've heard of. Right. Two out of four of those I've heard of because their association with movies, (laughs) because there was obviously Beetlejuice, the the movie, spelled differently. Um, And then Bellatrix was one of the the bad wizards in Harry Potter, I seem to remember. So Uh yes, but Safe and Rigel. Rigel? Right, right. One of those. We'll, we'll yeah. go with either. Okay, yeah. so those are the four. So Rigel's actually the sixth brightest star in the night sky. And Betelgeuse itself ranges anywhere from 10th brightest in the sky to 23rd. Right. Which is what currently kind of yeah. is. Depending on what's going on. Depending on what's going on. Uh, so these are all prominent stars. And then you've got the three stars on a line, which have become the belt mm-hmm. of Orion. And then there's kind of three stars which hang down from the belt, which we interpret as being a sword. So, of course, the second star in the sword is not really a star at all. And it doesn't take much. You can even, if on a really good, clear night, see yourself that that second star looks a little bit fuzzy. Mm-hmm. But that second star is not a star. It's the Orion Nebula. It's one of the most famous astronomical images. It's a really close by nebula where we have a great star forming region. Check the show notes because we'll have pretty pickies. Yeah. Yeah. It's really fantastic. Uh, So and then the whole of um, the Orion kind of area, if you imagine that the Orion Nebula is just this tiny little blob in the middle if you actually look with really really good long extended photography there's a huge amount of nebulosity all throughout the entire constellation it's absolutely huge right okay Uh, you can find all sorts of wonderful things in there including things like barnard's loop which is an enormous big arc of nebulosity that goes through the entire constellation of orion there's just a lot of fantastic stuff going on and the reason is because not only is Orion um, or the Orion region really active in star formation, it's one of the biggest star forming regions we think in the galaxy. Wow. Now, just back up a minute, because I always thought that one of the, the really interesting things about constellations, which are, let's face it, random collections of you know nearby stars in the sky as we see them. But I mean, if you were to go to some other part of the galaxy and look around, 
you would not see the same shapes in the sky because the stars, like it's not, it's not a plane. They're in 3D space. So the stars that you're talking about in Orion, how, how close are they actually? They could be incredibly far spread apart, but are, they, are you talking about bits which are sort of actually all in roughly the yeah, same kind so of Yeah, so many of these objects are really associated, truly. Wow, okay. Uh, so we call a, like a constellation something called an asterism, which means basically just, well, you see three stars in a row, for example, in the belt, but are they actually anywhere near each other truly in space? Yeah, Is one, one could really be really far close, away yeah. And one really close, yeah. So the, and, and actually the stars in the belt are not very uh, well associated. They're just randoms. But things like Betelgeuse, um, Rigel, and Safer all pretty much between 800 and 1300 light years away. In fact, Bellatrix itself is the weird one because it's a bit closer at 250 light years. Right. So they are kind of part of this giant sort of bubble region of Orion. They weren't necessarily born like in the same cloud, but they're associated with the same kind of big structure. Okay, cool. In fact, we maybe think that Betelgeuse was kicked out of a closer structure because it's got this incredible um, space velocity, its own motion through the galaxy that would only have come about if it's been kind of a bit fussed with in the early part of its life. Cool. Okay. So most of them, yeah, something like 700 light years away, which is pretty close. So we're really lucky to have the Orion Nebula because it tells us a lot about star formation and it's nicely, nice and close, easy to observe. Yeah. So Orion, beyond being just a particularly good constellation, is actually a very useful thing to look at. Yeah. Okay. So Betelgeuse itself within the constellation Orion is something called an M-type red supergiant. All right. Unpack that for me. M-type red supergiant. Well, we can start with the Betelgeuse and Rigel. They're two of my favorite stars in the sky because they are stars that are so bright, we can actually start to interpret their color just with the naked eye. So Betelgeuse, for example, is one of the reddest stars that you can see in the sky, and Rigel is one of the bluest. Right. That's why I've heard of Rigel before. Yeah. And they're really handy because they're right next to each other. So you can observe them at the same time. Yeah. So if you're talking to someone about hey did you know the stars are different colors look up there that one that one red blue see done yeah exactly very so nicely that beetlejuice is a red supergiant and uh, rigel is a blue supergiant yeah handy yeah so a red supergiant means that um well the red is kind of self-explanatory supergiant gives you a hint of what's going on here it's big yeah this is a star that used to be an enormous um blue supergiant actually it probably used to be an o star which is the hottest classification of stars that we have. And it's evolved from that. It's gone through its fuel source, exhausted all the hydrogen in the core during hydrogen fusion to helium. And it's now turned into a red giant star. And it's so big, in this case, we call it a red supergiant. Right. How, how supergiant is supergiant in, in sort of in comparison to something that, that we know, which is us, and our sun, the solar <laughs> it's, it's system. It's quite big compared to you, Chris. <laughs> well, okay, I didn't mean quite that personal. Um, <laughs> even though I am quite a large man. Um, our solar system, yes. the sun and the earth, and so how, how big is a red supergiant? Well, rather large. So these things are notoriously difficult to measure the radius of, but mm. because Betelgeuse is so close, we've had a pretty good crack at it. Uh, we can actually see the disc using really sophisticated interferometry. Really? You can yeah. actually see the size you of the star. You can see the disc. Now we wow. go on a lot about how you just can't resolve yeah. stars. You can't resolve stars. You stars resolve are stuff. points. You can't. Apparently, you gen- can. <laughs> you can for very close, very yeah. big ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Betelgeuse is one of them. So our best guess is that it's some. if you put it in Betelgeuse in our solar system, the edge of the star would be somewhere between the asteroid belt and Jupiter. What? 
<laughs> I thought you were about to say the edge of the star would be sort of somewhere towards Earth-ish. But no, you're talking like past Mars, way out. Past, past the asteroid belt and on its way to Jupiter. That's super giant. That's really, 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 really big. Yeah, we weren't kidding. Wow. Okay. I've just, right. I've just completely recalibrated my notion of what that bigness means. Thanks. It's, it's really, really crazy. Yeah. So that's about four and a half times the distance from the Earth to the sun. Wow. <laughs> so the sun's really looking kind of small now. And we think it's big. Okay. So that's Betelgeuse, red supergiant. Good. Yeah. yeah. Now, the interesting thing about that is even though it's so huge, it's only about 12 times the mass of the sun. So it's really big, but really spread out. Really spread out, yeah. Wow. And this okay. is what we call red giants because they, when you lose the uh, ability to undergo the hydrogen fusion at the rate that you do when you're uh, in your normal fusion state of a star, we call it the main sequence, then your core starts to contract and it does also, you can't hold on to the outer atmosphere of the star so tightly as it used to. Because And it's being sort of blown outwards by... The radiation pressure that's that's coming from the reactions in the core, so exactly. the outer bits, but they're not being held on as tightly. Why, why are they not? So it's kind of kind of puffs up because you've got you've got a contraction of the core, so you've got a change in the distribution of mass, right? And so, and then yeah, you're right, and the whole radiation pressure increases at the same time. So it changes that balance, and then that's quite a significant change in balance to grow to that size. Yeah, it's that's quite big. crazy what happens. So we start instead of having the fusion reaction of hydrogen to helium in the core, it, uh, we can trigger once you get to a compact enough core that gets to an extreme temperature, that helium itself can ignite in fusion, and that helium starts to fuse to carbon and oxygen. That's where you start making those much heavier elements down in the core yeah and all of these um, new nuclear reactions output enormous amounts of energy and you've still got hydrogen fusion going on it's just happening in a shell now around this helium fusion core right so this it comes just this crazy nuclear uh, runaway reaction basically i just i'm I'm still i'm sorry I'm, i'm still about three minutes back i'm still trying to wrap my head around a star that's that big but okay how big's okay all right how big's the core at this point Oh, it's it, well. I don't know the numbers. I haven't got them to hand, but it's it will be a huge core because it's much much more uh, dense in the core. To ha- so when you start with an amount of star, if you like, mm. the size of your core depends on how much gravity you can compress material down to be at your million, um, ten million. Uh, degrees so that you can start fusion and the more gravity you have the more mass you have the bigger your core yeah. that goes along with it yeah okay still wrapping my head around this one carry on so you've got this um so the whole star expands basically and it's this is the the weird kind of um contradiction of red giant stars at the same time they get brighter but they also get cooler brighter but cooler okay so the 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 brightness Correct me if I'm wrong, okay? I'm just I'm just going to swing this one off the top of my head. The brightness is the amount of radiation coming out, the mm-hmm. amount of light across all the different wavelengths. The temperature is the frequency of that light. Where's where's it where's it peaking at? The color, yep. basically. Yep. Yeah. And we're talking about the surface at this because that's the that's where we see what we see of the star. We see the surface. Yeah, we see the stuff coming out. So yeah. the whole star's expanded, which means that the surface has got more rarefied. And it's cooled, even though there's now enormous numbers of photons pouring out of this star. Right. 
Okay, so very, very bright, but not as hot as, say, our own sun. Yeah. In the sense of the the energy of each one of those photons that's coming out is a higher frequency, shorter wavelength for our sun than for a red supergiant. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. But we have to remember that surface, right? And inside the core, of course, it's doing it's insane yeah. temperature. Crazy still. nuts. Okay. Yeah. So that's why we call these big red supergiants. They're big puffy red things and and they go through all these wonderful kind of phases they get really unstable um all these re- nuclear reactions start getting uh, faster and faster and faster this is a complete chaotic system for the star there's just no way it can recover from this uh, state so very small instabilities inside the star can cause massive chaotic effects on the surface and um this is related to why betelgeuse is doing such crazy stuff now right so it's got this really complex asymmetric sort of envelope that's around it. And that's created by the old outer layers of the star. It's kind of shedding stuff, but it's not a constant stream of material flowing off the surface. It happens in bouts and in phases, and it can happen in one direction more than another direction. So the whole thing gets really, really messy. And you get this really extended kind of emission coming from the whole area around Betelgeuse. And this is one of the reasons why it becomes really difficult to measure its size even because... So what does that even mean yeah, under those it's, circumstances? it's not even really a, a sphere like anymore. Measure it today, tomorrow is something really different. And I mean, that's the, to me, really fascinating thing about all of this is that like, these are changes that are happening across days, weeks, months. It's not, hey, we observed it 100 years ago and now we're observing it and it seems to change. It's, no, this is, this is changing on our timescales pretty quickly, which yeah. is amazing for something that, that it's big. It's incredible, yeah. And this is also why I love pulsations. And incidentally, Betelgeuse has pulsations. We understand that these This is your of, home turf. This is what you do. Yeah, the red giant stars have pulsations and Betelgeuse is no different. We don't really know much about Betelgeuse's pulsations. We think that they're very long, mm-hmm. period, because it's such an enormous star. Um, but it's probably got some sort of fundamental pulsation that's a f- maybe a thousand days, maybe a bit more. So long. why is that? Why is that so uncertain? You're sort of, you know, you're, you're talking about this like, well, we're not really sure. And I would have thought it's really close. You can you can see it, Emily. You can, you know, you said you could you could actually see the disc of it. I would have thought, well, surely that's a really good candidate. So okay, let's lock onto that and really measure the hell out of this thing, and we'll understand it really, really well. Is it because it is so big and so chaotic? Yeah, we could observe it. It doesn't mean we're necessarily going to understand it in any hurry. Is it's, that? it's part of that. But it's also because, well, first of all, things that are a couple of thousand days long, that's a few years. And it takes a long time to get good data on that. Okay. But even putting that aside, this is such a chaotic star that when you've got material that can come in and obscure the light, it's just kind of the old sheddings of the star. How do you know whether that's part of the pulsation right. or if that's part of the shedding? So it's just a bit too complicated. Yeah. And you, you want a simpler system. We've got bright spots that appear on the surface that are not, you know, um, well geometrically distributed across the star so they cause kind of inconsistencies in the brightness it's really messed up it's just too big and puffy and wobbly to to really get a good grip on yeah, yeah. so when we think about what why we're seeing this particular dimming there's a couple of options um so i've gone and read a few of the experts opinions about what might that this might be and it may well be actually a combination of several things so it could be part of this um envelope that's been shed that's kind of come in and like a fog obscured the surface which makes it appear a lot dimmer 
We also know that there's a lot of really crazy magnetic activity going on on the surface. And that magnetic activity is not like beautiful, simple bar magnet kind of stuff that we do in um, primary, primary school, school classrooms. Yeah. It's, these are magnetic fields that are just all over the show. Um, the sun has a crazy magnetic field, but it still has kind of an overall alignment, uh, even if it's got hot spots. But if you take away even the symmetry of the star and yeah. you've got bright spots, you've got plasma moving all over the place. It's just a mess. Yeah, messy, big, it's really, really puffy. Messy. Um, yeah, and then you've got some, maybe there's kind of some really interesting um, things going on with the hot spots that are appearing on the surface. These are kind of big areas, like big blobs on the surface that are much brighter than or much hotter than the rest of the surface. We think these are something to do with big bubbles of convection that oh, are coming wow. up from the uh, and deep inside the star, and then. It starts rotating as well, so then those things rotate in and out of your view. So it's lots of wonderful, weird, complex physics now, going on. It must take ages for this thing to actually rotate. That's a good question. I haven't looked at the rotation. It's something that period. size. Yeah. yeah it's, and, it's, and it may just be, by conservation of angular momentum, yeah. it must be pretty. And it may even be for something that complicated. Like, what does rotation even mean? Yeah. <laughs> something that well, size. Well, that's the thing. The whole thing doesn't have to rotate at the yeah. same rate. It's probably yeah. got a lot of differential Weird. rotation. I'd now. love to see what this thing looks like. I mean, okay, maybe not quite up close, but I've been looking recently for some other work that I've been doing at um, some of NASA's um, solar observatory imagery of the sun. And it's, I mean, absolutely staggering. If you've, if you've never seen this stuff like this, it's all over YouTube. It's really easy to find. And, you know, daily or multiple times a day, taking these amazing pictures of the sun. And you can see huge, just great explosions of gunk coming off the surface of the sun. And it's roiling and boiling around. It's amazing stuff. I would love to see what Beetlejuice looks like under under similar kinds of, of observational circumstances. Just what the surface of this thing would even look like. It must be amazing. Yeah. So this whole envelope that I'm talking about with Beetlejuice, this, um, or this or it's mass that it's shed in previous parts of its uh, evolution, this is probably something like 250 times bigger than the star itself. Wow. Which so if we say that this is about five astronomical units, yeah, two hundred and fifty times five is about a thousand astronomical units. Which gets us where? Well, Pluto's kind of at its worst about fifty. <laughs> wow. Okay. So this so, is a star, and it's and it's sort of shroud that extends well beyond the boundaries of our solar system. Yeah. Wow. That's nuts. So it's no huge. no wonder it's a little bit difficult to get a grip on what's happening here. <laughs> what is this thing doing? Yeah. So, um, yeah, just some other cool little things about that bitty juice. Because it's so big and it's so bright, and but it's so red, if you actually um, had eyes that could see the entire electromagnetic spectrum, uh, you would actually, the Betelgeuse would be the brightest star in the sky. Across all wavelengths? Yeah, because most of its oh, light wow. is put out in the infrared. Ah. If you could see it, then yeah, it would then be. Then it would be the brightest. It would it would just blow you away. You'd be like, "Whoa, what is that thing?" Wow, cool. Okay, Crazy. what else? Uh, so, what else have we got? So, Betelgeuse is um, a wonderful word. You, well, let's come back to this. It uh, is a good word. I mean, it. of of all of the names of stars, it's up there in the. And then there's Betelgeuse, and that you know, it just it's just such a nice word. No yeah. wonder they picked it for the movie. So, Betelgeuse is an Arabic word, or at least. It maybe once was an Arabic word. Sure. Uh, you might notice that the stars in the sky have pretty strange names. You might expect them to have Latin names or maybe Greek names. Sure. If you're going to go by, you know, say like plants, hmm. 
plants' um, botanical names are Latin, for example. Sure. But And that's true also for the constellations. For example, we basically use uh, Roman and Greek mm-hmm. names for planets. So, you know, these these do have the similar origins, but stars tend to be... Not all, but many of the stars that have proper names are from Arabic. Yeah, Betelgeuse is not a Roman name. It's not no. a no. It's no. not Greek. No, and uh, so Betelgeuse itself, the name means depending on how you translate back, translate and translate again, either shoulder or my favourite armpit. Oh, okay. So it really, it's not just in in our astrological mythology, the shoulder of Orion. It's it's the shoulder. That's the name of it. Or the armpit, because the armpit. actually Orion's holding up a club. You might not ah. have thought about that part of the constellation or looked out for it, but he is his, um, his arm is holding up a club while his other arm has a shield. That I, I always thought it was aware. an archer, but yeah. it's a shield, the other one. No, it's, it's Capricorn. No, Sagittarius is the archer. Yes. Capricorn's the goat. Yes. Sagittarius. I should know this because I am Sagittarian, but you know, I don't pay a lot of attention. Yeah. Um holding up a club. So, so holding up a club. Beetlejuice yeah. is his armpit. Yeah. There you are. Uh, a big red blobby hairy armpit. And this is not super unusual for a lot of the stars that do have proper names because I'm gonna tell you how some of the stars sort of maybe got their names. Actually, how stars got their names is a really complicated field, and mm-hmm. I don't want to belittle the enormous amounts of research that go into this because it's all tied up in culture and linguistics sure. and all sorts of stuff. Going back is a very long way. A very broad brush approach seems to be something like this. Mm-hmm. So Ptolemy uh, decided to name That's some of the stars. Ptolemy. Yeah, with a PT. Yeah, Ptolemy. Name some stars and constellations based on their positions in those constellations. So he said Orion's armpit or the fish's tail or the boat's mast or whatever. Sure. And these are not all the same constellations as we have today. Some of them have come and gone. But by and large, in the Northern Hemisphere, that's what happens. These were translated into Arabic sometime in the 8th to 9th century. Okay. Uh, and Arabic astronomers um, or Middle Eastern astronomers in general were incredibly talented. Uh, mm. They were great mathematicians. They were great navigators. And so these things were really, really important. It's really not appreciated cultures. how much stuff happened in the Arabic world uh, in those in those centuries around science, mathematics, astronomy. It's, yeah. it's extraordinary stuff. I read a whole book once just about the number zero and how that <laughs> came about. Amazing, amazing stuff. Uh, then... Sort of after we sort of got over the Dark Ages and kind of um, reared it, our heads into the Enlightenment period, somewhere maybe in the 12th century, um, the Latin or people who are not Latin, but people in Europe back translated the Arabic names back into Latin. Right. Okay. And sometimes did a very poor job. <laughs> Go figure. So, so some of the stars' names sort of have some kind of Arabic root that may have come from a descriptive word for where they are in the constellation, at least in the Latin constellation. But the words and the letters kind of got a bit messed around with as well. So they're not direct kind of right. translations. So, so some of the names at least have gone from one sort of uh, interpretation of the night sky through to completely different language and culture and then around to a third different language and culture and that's the they're the names that we've ended up with exactly right yeah. so you can actually write Betelgeuse and the or the a word that means a similar thing in a number of different ways and pronounce it in a number of different ways we've just kind of settled on this particular one because it sounds kind of cool I think yeah yeah so that's that's kind of star names and then why we why we have them that way all right so that's star names but coming around back to to, to Betelgeuse and what it's been doing 
I mean, has it been doing this, this? Has it been changing for a while now? Is this is this unusual for Beetlejuice? Is it just what Beetlejuice does? So Are astronomers surprised by this? We understand Betelgeuse has actually been a variable star for pretty much as long as we've known it for. Right. right. Betelgeuse is a, quite a young star. It's only about 10 million years old. Okay. And again, young in the astronomical sense. 10 million is a lot for us, but not so much for a star. Yeah. Well, think about our own sun. Our own sun's about 5 billion years billion old. Billion as opposed to 10 million. So that's a huge difference. So this yeah. tells you about the crazy evolution of very, very high mass stars, right? They burn through their fuel incredibly quickly and evolve. Uh, whereas our star has still got, you know, half a um, half of its fuel reserves roughly still left to go. Uh, so Betelgeuse um, has been known to vary for a very, very long time. In fact, its original and its current uh, Bayer classification, which means basically we take the constellation and we number or label the stars from the brightest down to the faintest, and we use yet yeah, doing using Greek numerals because. Because that's not? what we do. <laughs> so we've got alpha, beta, gamma, Oh, you use alpha for this one. Okay, right. So, okay. yeah, so Betelgeuse is, is other, another name for Betelgeuse. is alpha Orionis. But Betelgeuse is not the brightest star in Orion. It's not by, alpha. By it's it's losing way. its alpha status. So in the past, probably it was, mm. actually. It's, so normally uh, we have known it to rival Rigel. That's a really difficult thing to <laughs> say. Say that rival five Rigel. times. Um, so we have known it to be of similar brightness to Rigel. Uh, and maybe when um, Bayer was doing it in 1603, it was actually slightly brighter than um, Rigel. And so it got the alpha. It's certainly nowhere near alpha currently now. It's, it's, so it know. would now be what at best alpha, beta, gamma? Probably, probably even further, yeah. Um, wow. I haven't looked through to see where it would sit in the moment, but yeah, it's a lot further. And then uh, Herschel even saw in the 1800s a very similar dimming of Betelgeuse. So Herschel observed between 1837 and 1839, and he saw that it went from 10th magnitude all the way down to 23rd. How would they have been measuring Sorry, that? Sorry, the 10th brightest star to the 23rd brightest star. How would, like, is it, would that have been, like these days I can imagine you could observe something and go, let's literally measure how much light is coming from that star as opposed to that star. You could, you could, you could do that. Yep. In those days, would they just go, that one looks brighter than that one? Yeah, you had calibrations. So you knew that Rigel was this number. So if it changes compared to Rigel, because Rigel doesn't tend to change, then you, you they say, well, okay, it's brighter than, it's fainter than Rigel, but it's brighter than Bellatrix and it's brighter than this and it's fainter than this. Right, so you can, okay. And actually amateur astronomers even to this day have uh, very, very great, good, strong abilities to do brightness measurements by eye. I've heard of observers for the AAVSO, which is the uh, American um, Astronomical oh, American Association for Variable Star Observers, uh, there are still professional observers uh, there who are crazy good at getting magnif- magnitudes of stars just by visual just by observation. observation. That's amazing. Yeah. You can, you can train yourself to be incredibly yeah. good at this. Uh, and so that's – but Herschel also had his telescopes, of course, as yeah. well. So he was able to look at even fainter things. Even so, I mean, comparing things which aren't directly right next to each other, that's – Still not an easy thing to do. Anyway, okay, let's yeah, say you so can people, do that. People were good at that. And that, I mean, even going back to people like Goodrick, um, who was observing eclipsing binaries, this is what they did. They looked at the brightness compared to other objects. Cool. So Herschel observed in the 1800s this, an enormous change in Betelgeuse's brightness. And uh, he also uh, interpreted that as something to do with its evolution. So he, he, I don't think he went as far as saying it's going to blow, but uh, this is leads us to believe that Betelgeuse has pretty much been coming and going for a very, very long time. Been doing this for a while. So, about a million years. So recent reports of Betelgeuse about to go kablooey any day now. 
you not so much. Take that with a grain of salt. No, and it's mm. definitely not our number one candidate at the moment. The, anyway. Which which implies there is a number one candidate. Well, it depends on who you talk to. Okay, well, um, I'm talking to you. <laughs> I th- well, my 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 information sources tell me <laughs> my insider sources. <laughs> no, my, in the bureau. My of understanding Supernovas. is that maybe something like Ida Karina is a better kind of first option, okay. but. Ida Karina has also done some very calm things over the last it's sort of few years, so maybe it's gone off the charts. Ridiculously calm. But, I mean, is that what, what people look for, is this star is doing crazy stuff, therefore we think it's about to explode? Like, well, yeah, we don't really know exactly what's going to happen in the sort of moments before a star goes to a supernova. There haven't been terribly many observations like that, I guess. Well, yeah, and the observations we have have generally been of very, very faint things, mm-hmm. and... You don't know it's going to go until it goes, and then you've got to go back into your data and then see, what oh, did what, what did it look like, like before it went? Yeah. And did we have observations of it, say, in the last year? Maybe we didn't. Hmm. So it's not an easy hmm. science to do. Hmm. Um, 1987A, the supernova, which was in the uh, Magellanic Cloud, was probably the closest uh, good observation we have of that. But then that's still getting on to nearly 40 years ago. Yeah. So, yeah. And even if you're talking about something which – you know, best candidate for blowing up. It could happen any time within the next couple of hundred years. That's it's really hard to get that amount of observing time. I yeah. would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we just want to <laughs> lock on this thing. My next grant proposal will be. Want to lock on this thing for the next? Let's call it half a millennium. Okay, is that all right? Okay with you? <laughs> Indeed. So it's not. It's not super accurate science. Right. Yeah. But that being said, we I think Betelgeuse exploding would be very very cool. Mm. We'd be, first of all, completely safe. Good. Okay. 600 light years is a really nice distance to live from a supernova. (laughs) It's far enough for it to be interesting but not deadly. Exactly. So we'd see, we wouldn't get kind of the really huge amounts of radiation of gamma rays, X-rays, ultraviolet. We'd be fine. Good. It's a long way away. That would all kind of. We'd get some, but it wouldn't be of that nature. Just out of curiosity, just I, I do believe we have talked about this before, but... Let's say the closest star to us, other than the sun, which is, remind me, what's Proxima the Proxima Centauri. Okay, yeah. Yep. Let's say that one went supernova. Forget about the fact that it may not be the right kind of star to do that. Let's say it did. How how bad would that be? Pretty bad. Yeah. As in, as in yeah. we're done yeah. kind of bad? That's a, that's a radiation complete sterilization the of the planet. The next star, like, that's a really long way away, but that's a lot of, wow, okay. Yeah, so that's a bit. Yeah, supernovas are big, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> they're like, pretty big. They're yeah. not mucking around. Super yeah. giant supernova. We're getting a sense here that in astronomy, super means we're not mucking around. This is big. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, but Betelgeuse is far enough away that it would be spectacular, but not dangerous. It would look really pretty. What would it look like? So it probably means that Betelgeuse would come to look like something in the sky that's probably brighter than the full moon and very, very likely to be visible during the day. Brighter than the full moon. Wow. I mean, I guess it would take a while for it to actually like you. You see, sort of images of of nebulae and so on, which have been you know supernova that's then been expanding out all the time since. So it would take a while for Betelgeuse to it, that explosion to sort of spread out. It would, we, yeah. but, so we would still see it as very, very small, effectively point like star like, just really bright. Yeah, it wouldn't become big in the sky, just bright in the sky. Exactly, yeah. Wow. Um, but once you could sort of have waited a few thousand years, then you'd get some really nice yeah. nebulae from the telescopes. So I guess when we get to the get to the end points of some of these conversations on this podcast, we invariably come around to the same question, which is, so Emily, from an astronomical point of view, 
why do we care about this? What's important in this story? Well, I've got two things. Go on then. Very, very different things. One is the science that's going on. And I think that's really exciting. We're so lucky to have the Orion Nebula close to us. We can see the birth of new stars Mm. in this kind of stellar nursery environment. We're also very lucky to have stars like Betelgeuse close to us because we can see the deaths of stars happening and we can see things, we can see the disk of Betelgeuse. We can observe these brightness changes. We can observe spots on the surface. That's really exciting. So all this information is telling us more about this physics that go on in stars and that play out from their birth all the way through to their death. So the fact that we've been observing Betelgeuse doing its its crazy thing over the last however many months. If you take away the alarmist, it's about to explode. And it's like, well, let's shelve that for a minute. It's still really good stuff. Yeah, it's fantastic. And uh, so we're going to learn a lot from all our observations of Betelgeuse um, now and in, and in the future about how these very rare, very, very massive stars live their lives. But I think even more uh, kind of exciting than that is that mm-hmm. Orion's a really easy to identify constellation in the sky. That is true. I mean, if you were to ask people to go and find Orion, I would say a large number of people, I don't hesitate to say maybe most, yeah. um, would be able to do that. It's visible ne- from nearly the entire planet because it's very, very close to the equator, the celestial equator. Uh, it's observable for several months of the year, generally January through to March. So now is a really great time to go out and see Orion because the sun's opposite part mm-hmm. of the sky, if that makes sense. Uh, and yeah, it's a really there's uh, enough bright stars that are in a strange enough shape that it's easily identifiable. Yeah. And so you can go out tonight or tomorrow or the next night that it's clear and see the evolution of stars happening live in front of your eyes. You can see that Betelgeuse looks a lot dimmer than Rigel and Bellatrix and so on that are around it. And that's Crazy. Yeah, where it, whereas it used to be, not so long ago in human terms, it used to be the alpha, used to be the brightest one in that constellation. It's now clearly, demonstrably not. Yeah. That's change. And in a few months' time, it may well be back to being nearly yeah. the same brightness as Rigel. Yeah, and you could you could even train yourself to even uh, you know observe that for yourself. If other people can do it with their eyes, you can. Yeah. There's a challenge for this year, for 2020. What New Year's resolution did you make? My New Year's resolution is to be able to spot when Beetlejuice gets brighter again. That's a fantastic resolution. I like it. Well, finding our way out of this super episode, super big episode of the of the Syzygy podcast, first back for 2020, which is very exciting, and my my brain has been blown. I think, you know, often on this podcast, I find my perspective on the universe being shifted somewhat, and the notion of a star roiling around at a size somewhere between the asteroid belt and Jupiter has just really thrown me for a loop Um, along with what a supernova would actually mean on a star fairly close to us but you know that's okay I'll come to terms with that Emily good to be back it's fantastic I'm so excited there's been so many new discoveries that have come out over the past few weeks and several of them will be like oh that would be great to talk about and I was so cool so excited when you suggested this one I was like oh yeah Betelgeuse is great I love Betelgeuse I'm I'm glad we did this one because I didn't really know anything about Betelgeuse other than it helped to name a movie. Um, We have had a few suggestions thrown our way uh, from listeners, and by listeners I mean 
my mum. Um, so we, you know, we're able to start filling up the whiteboard here in Emily's office. But if you out there in Listenerland have any thoughts, suggestions, comments, questions, ideas, then there are a bunch of different ways that you can get in contact with us. Emily, name one. Twitter. Yes. Yay. How do they find us? We are at Pod. And we are at, well, you should type in Syzygy Pod into Facebook. Yeah. You can get us up on Instagram. You can even get to our fantastic website, syzygy.fm. That's right. I think we've probably been a little bit quiet on the social medias over the Christmas period as we've been eating our, well, you had lamb. I had goose, which was rather nice over, over Christmas, which is good. Um, but yeah, we've been a bit quiet on the social media, so it's time to ramp that one back up again for 2020. You can find us out there on the interwebs in those ways. There are other ways that you can get involved with this podcast other than sending us questions and ideas and comments and hellos and emojis. Um, one of those ways is to help us out, to help us rise up through the noise of the infinite number of podcasts out there on the interwebs. The best way to do that is to just tell people, you know, go and tell people about this fabulous thing that you've been listening to as you've been doing the vacuuming around the home. And tell them about Beetlejuice. That's Stop right. You, you'll impress all Take your Take them outside and point, point it out to them and say, that one, that one there, it's going to explode any minute now. No, don't tell them that. That would be wrong. Um, leave a review on your podcast client of choice. Give us a few stars and a bit of a comment and a review because that really does help us to rise up. Every single one of those comments helps us to move through the noise. And you can, of course, contribute financially to help help us keep the lights on here in Syzygy HQ by going to patreon.com slash syzygypod, of course. But otherwise, that brings us to the end of the first show for not just 2020, but for an entire new decade. Very exciting. So we'll catch you in, I don't know, a week's time or so. Catch you later. later. Bye, everybody.